kind of kind of recap where we're at. Um, you know, I've, I've kind of said to you, when you look at Revelation, it's made up of seven circles, right? Each circle represents a period of time, the same period of time. So Revelation kind of goes over the same thing seven different times. What are we going over? Well, we're talking about the end times, this time that we're in, that really began when Jesus Christ was born into this world and will conclude when the trumpet blows. So we're in that third circle is where we're at. The first circle is made up of the seven churches, the letters to the seven churches. The second one, we have the breaking of the seven seals. This third one, we have the sounding of the seven trumpets. Every single time a trumpet blows, what happens is you see God release a little bit more authority to that stuff in our world and in the supernatural world that, that is actually, we would look at it and say it's destructive. You're allowing a little bit more to happen in, in the natural world, where we see the natural resources of the world put in compromise. And so it's, it's not coincidental that, you know, I grew up in, in a time frame where there were, there were definitely natural disasters. But over my years, guess what? Those natural disasters have risen to such a point that it's, it's now an industry. Industries are dedicated to responding to the multiple natural disasters that we have worldwide. Why? Because they continue to increase. Is that accidental? No. Is it foretold in the Revelation? Absolutely yes. The second thing that's happening, you can't see with your eyes physically. But what God is doing is he's saying, I'm going to give a little bit more rope, leeway, to demons, fallen angels. Um, leading up to that period that, that I believe has not begun yet, uh, what we call that half a time, during which period of time I will actually allow those demons to, to kill human beings. Today they cannot do that. They have the power in your life and mine as Christians to oppress us. And, and there are times in life where you may go through that, a satanic oppression, where you have demons that are just, they have discovered something in your life that I'm going to take advantage of. And, and you, you literally feel it. Uh, I, I can't tell you the number of times that I've had people come into my office and say, I just feel like I'm under a satanic attack. I tell them, talk to me about it. Most of the time I say, you're absolutely right. You, you are. Let's, let's take a look at what's going on in your life and, and where the God who covers us can push back against that. Demons can, can oppress us. They cannot possess us. As a Christian, we are, we are in, uh, living inside of us is the Spirit of God. There's no room for a uh, fallen angel uh, to, to inhabit our, our person. Uh, outside of Christianity, outside of faith, uh, demons do possess people. And in fact, I still believe that a lot of stuff that we'll see in the news, why did this person do this crazy thing? Well, they're insane. Well, that, there's insanity. I'm not saying that there aren't, you know, mental illnesses. But I will tell you this, many times I believe you have demonic uh, possession that is going on in, in a person's life. We just are too sophisticated in America today to call it what it is. The Bible mentions no words. That is exactly what demons do and will continue to do. In fact, it will become worse. And um, that's what the Revelation tells us. If you're John, you're a human being, you're watching all this happen. It's, it's a vision. And, and you're being shown this and you, you just want to stop at times. You, know, you just want to say, just, just stop. This is too much for me. 
And the interesting thing is, that's, that's what happens in Revelation. God actually has built in these moments where he just stops. And the purpose of that is to say to John, John, I'm going to assure you right now that as bad as all this looks, I'm in control. As bad as it looks, I'm doing something good. I am bringing people to me. I'm breaking the stubbornness of human beings and coming into people's lives. So John, just, just watch and know that I am not abandoning the earth or abandoning my people. Okay? Chapters 10 and 11 are one of those stops, right? So in chapter 10, you have the, 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 the angel Iscarus, the strong angel, that comes to say to, to John, John, look at what God's doing. He's leading us out of this world into the promised land. What is the promised land? New earth, which we will live on together with God for eternity. That's where he's taken us. Is he in control? Yes. Look, he's got his feet on the land and the sea. He's stretched out. He's fully in control. Well, why is he letting all this stuff happen? To bring people to him. He wants people to live on that new earth. Okay, I get it. That's chapter 10. Chapter 11 we end up with what are called the two witnesses. And what we've seen is, is God, God says, during this time, when all this stuff's happening on planet Earth, guess what? My two witnesses are at work. Well, who are those witnesses? And we looked back in the Old Testament, and the, the witnesses actually represent all those people who do what? Give testimony to Jesus Christ and, and continue to preach his true word. It's important for me to say it that way. His true word to a world that is breaking apart. I think one of the reasons that God put Peace Lutheran Church here in this community, I really do believe this, is this is a body committed to teaching the word as it is. It may offend some people. It probably will. But you know what? We're not going to say, you know what? Well, we don't want to be offensive, so let's try to make it fit what... People are doing no. Preach the true word is to say that this is what God says, not human beings. Live it this way. I think it is because I, I look at the world of church today and I see so many churches that have just abandoned the word or they've said, you know what, we, we, want, we want more people to join our church, so let's, let's kind of just make ourselves fit in and we're just going to make a little bit of a change here and a little bit of a change here. No. You know what? Um, I, I'd rather... I'd rather one person, you know, than um, compromise the truth of the gospel. So part of what these witnesses are doing is they're speaking the truth of God during this time of intense uh, persecution. Now, when you read it, the, the first part of it sounds good because the witnesses are what? They're, they're, they're overcoming darkness. And uh, there's allusions made back into the Old Testament, particularly to Elijah. So you see these witnesses, and fire comes from their mouth, and you know, they destroy their enemies, and you say, what, what is that? Well, all it is, it's pointing to the fact that when you look back at history, there's always been witnesses that have stood against evil. And God has always done what? Spoken through them, and at times, actually performed supernaturally through those witnesses. That's true in Elijah's time. Fire, fire came down from heaven, right? burned up the, 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 the altar and ultimately killed the false prophets of Baal. So um, part of this, the first part of chapter 11, 
all of us are in the stands and we got our red on and, and and we're cheering you know go big god because that's what the witnesses are doing they're like bam 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 you're like yay and then all of a sudden something happens a beast arises and that's the word that it uses here that this beast from the bottomless pit verse number seven rises up and makes war with the two witnesses and what happens to him he kills him kills him to me the word that I, I hope you'll just circle in your Bible in English is this verse 7 and when they have finished circle that word finished is very important when they have finished their testimony okay this death of the witnesses doesn't doesn't happen until what the very end we're right at the end and uh, so, so what I believe it's signifying is that during the last part of human history, which again, I, I, th I don't think has begun yet, but when, when it does, you'll, you'll, there, there'll be no mistaking it. People say, do you think we're close? I'm like, a lot of signs indicate yes, but you know what? Those signs have, have been present for a lot of decades. But when it begins, what will happen is the, the ability of us, of Christians, to give testimony, to give witness boldly, is what? Killed. Stopped. Okay? Now, there are times in our human history where that's already happened. We can look back, you know, and look, look into some of the history of China or Russia or um, if you go into northern, the northern Sudan, uh, there's a lot of regions today where, guess what? It's illegal. You cannot do this. You cannot speak these words. It's killed. It looks like it's dead. And so I believe at the, in that last period of time, all the way up to the end, there will be uh, not just persecution, but, but you as Christians, are, we will silence you. Now, does, it ever, does the testimony of Jesus Christ ever truly stop? No, it doesn't. But to those who are in the world, it looks like, guess what? We've succeeded. We've overcome the witness of Jesus Christ. And you have this really strange language used here that I, I call the anti-Christmas. People actually celebrate it. Celebrate the death of Christians. Okay? So um, if you look at it in verse number um, 10, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because the two prophets have been, who, who have been a torment to those, are, they're dead, right? Think of how evil perceives you and I as Christians. You're, you're what? You're, you're killjoys. You're, you're stopping our, our, our freedom. You, you're in our face. You're, you're people that, you know, try to stop us from have, enjoying life and doing the things that we want to do. And, and so if I can just shut you up, yay! Exchange presence is dead. They're out of our way now, right? Um, you know, you get a glimpse of this. This has been in the news here in the last, you know, few weeks. Um, there's this, this website where, you know, people have gone to have affairs, right? And the guy that started that website, that that's, was his intention. He says, I want to create a website that lets people who are married, you know, go on and register and have, have affairs with each other. And I still remember um, a day back in, in Dallas where they, they invited that guy, the guy who started that, to come debate uh, a, a pastor of, of one of the large Baptist churches. 
And uh, I was very interested in that debate. And you know, you, when you watch that debate, it, it was back and forth. And, and the guy that was, you know, saying I'm the, I'm the affair guy, he was he wasn't an idiot. He wasn't like a, a, a dumb guy. He's a pretty smart guy. And his contention was, you know what? We as human beings uh, were made for multiple partners, and it's healthy for your marriage to have have affairs. Well, at the end of the at the end of that debate, you know the thing that that's always kind of stood out in my mind is if you would have had scorecards and you would have said, you know, who won this debate? The honest evaluation, just watching the crowd and watching people, I think it would have been probably a draw. I think most people you wouldn't have had people all walk away and say that guy's a bad guy. That surprised me until something happened. They allowed people to come to the microphone and say a few words. And one little boy got up and comes up to that microphone. And he says, I know that man thinks that affairs are good, but it hasn't been good for me. My mom and dad had, had my daddy had an affair, and my, my mom and dad's marriage has broke apart, and it broke my heart. And you could have heard a pin drop in that room. And I thought, guess what? Put the scorecards down, because that's truth in the middle of, of a room, right? Well, guess what? The truth is coming out. And all these people that signed up for that thing that are all kind of hidden behind the internet, here comes their names being published. And uh, I think someone told me some of the first suicides are now beginning to take place. And you know what the devil does? I, I'm just going to say it the way this, this book says it. He rejoices in that. Good. Kill yourself. Because that's the way he does it. He puts this deception out in front of people come and take this and it's going to make your life you're going to feel good it's going to be right for you and what is a deception that kills you and so that's what he's doing he's just rejoicing rejoicing over the death of you christians can't tell us how to live that's the way that we're perceived all right now the beautiful thing is the prophets don't stay dead the testimony never stays dead and so you have um, the breath of life from god stand them back up on their feet in verse number 11 at the end and now the world sees them and guess what it says it says oh darn right um whoops yeah, uh oh <laughs> they just got up well why well because this is taking us right to the very end and this is what i want you to see this is kind of interesting to me um, verse number two of, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies, their enemies watched them. Here's what I want you to see, this next verse. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. Now that glory is not a, oh God, you're wonderful. It's a false glory. It's, oh, hey, whoa, wait a minute, whoops. No, no, God says, no, I know who you are. This is taking us to judgment day. And here's what I want you to see is it's not new. It's not new. The thing that boggles my mind, and it really does boggle my mind, is how often in the scriptures you, you will see testimony given to this great day that's going to come, the judgment day. And interestingly, Cataclysmic events, appearances of God in history, are frequently accompanied by what? Earthquakes. 
And so you, you have this, this list of earthquakes that take place. Jesus' death, his resurrection. But particularly at the end, the Bible tells us there will be this shaking of the earth. Well, why? Because I'm going to destroy it. Now, I'm going to take you to a couple of places that I think are worth just looking at because I want you to see that this, this, this vision that John is receiving isn't just new information. It's what God has been saying all along. He's always been pointing to this is what life is about. It's about a new earth, and I, I will create it, and I will come. So the first place I want to take you is back to this, this interesting place in Zechariah. So we're going to go to the 14th chapter of Zechariah. If you can find that. One of the latter prophets. You'll find Zechariah. Just, just get really close to the end of the, end of the Old Testament. And you'll get there. Chapter 14 is what I want you to look at. And I want you to notice how similar the words of Zechariah are to what John is seeing in this, in this vision. Chapter 14, Zechariah. Now remember, this is 520 what? B.C. 520 B.C. So um, this prophet uh, begins to talk about the day that the Lord will come. Now, just, just notice some of his words. Let's start with verse 1, 14. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. Okay, now, um, I'm going to come back to that because it parallels this idea of the exchanging of presents. The spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For, he says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken and the house plundered and the woman raped. So Zechariah is speaking words that if I heard him for the first time, I would say, that doesn't sound good. And that doesn't sound like God. Why? Because I'm an Israelite. I'm a Jew. I'm chosen. And what you, Zechariah, are telling me is that God is going to gather up the nations to come against Jerusalem. And guess what? They are actually overcoming the city. To the degree that, verse number one, they're dividing their spoils amongst one another. Making merry. Celebrating. It almost parallels exactly what you're reading in the Revelation. Zechariah is pointing to the very same thing that John would see in the Revelation. Now, in the Revelation, it sounds like this. Remember that we started off with a measuring rod. Go and measure the city. Remember the measuring rod was shaped like a staff. And so they measured the inner courts with the rod. And that was pointing to all of those who belong to the shepherd. They are of faith. This is my city. Now outside of that, outside of that are those who are outside of the court of God, non-believers. And remember in the Revelation when it says, those outside are given the power, the authority by God to attack the city of Jerusalem and overcome it. See how it parallels exactly what you're reading in Revelation, what you see in Zechariah, thousands of years before Jesus Christ. They go hand in hand. All right, skip down to verse 3. It says, Then the Lord God will go out. Remember that breath that comes back into the witness? 
then the Lord God will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Well, if you know anything about the Old Testament, when God fights on a day of battle, no Goliath, no army, no nothing can stand against him, right? I mean, God's got an army of 170,000 people coming against Israel, and he says, one angel, wipe them out in one second. You can't stand against them. The entire army of Egypt says there's no way that two million slaves with no guns and no bows and no spears and no chariots, there's no way those foolish people can overcome us. God says, can you swim? <laughs> Kaboom, right? So when God fights a battle, look out. Verse 4 says, on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. So almost like that great angel that's got one foot here and one foot there, and now the, the Mount of Olives is split in two, and God is standing over his people. And uh, it, it, it says... Uh, so that one half of the mountain will move northward, the other southward, and you will flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. Now, if you remember, uh, Azal is a person that you meet back in First Chronicles chapter 8 who lived east of Jerusalem. And so the picture that you're getting here is just, again, a picture of this land being split apart. My people are, are escaping from the doom that has been put upon them. Uh, and they are, they are um, uh, fleeing. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. What is Zechariah talking about? When does that day happen? When the Lord comes with all of his holy ones. Judgment day. That's when that day has. On that day, this is, this is what's so cool. Just think about new earth. Look at this. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time, there should be light. A lot of people believe that new earth will not have night. Only the light of God, who is fully present. On that day, living water shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. The water, that's life, will never stop. Jesus is with you. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. All those who belong to him are now with him. All those who are apart from him are separated from him. So already, back in the day of Zechariah, there is testimony given involving, guess what, an earthquake that points to the last day, the day of judgment. When you're reading this in the Revelation, John, remember John, knows his Old Testament. And so when he sees this scene and this earthquake is getting ready to take place, he knows, guess where we're going? To judgment day. We're going to the last day and the recreation uh, of new earth. Kind of interesting, isn't it? That parallel. Let me show you another parallel. New Testament this time. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. One of the great books for the reformers. 
course, most of you know this. You know, Luther, Luther had a Stein. And you go back and you look at Luther, some of Luther paraphernalia. He had a beer Stein that was huge. And it had these little rings around it, like three rings that would go up it. And um, so he would, he would actually challenge, his best friend's name was Thomas, Thomas Melanchthon. He would actually challenge Thomas to see who could drink the most beer out of that mug. And so he, he named his, his rings on his mug. He said, this one's the Apostles' Creed, and this one's the Lord's Prayer, and this one's the Ten Commandments. Let's see how far it can get, right? And they would drink that. Now, well, this was one of their favorite books of the Bible because, you know, the Reformers didn't like this. They're like, well, you can't drink beer. That's bad, like the Baptists. If you're a Baptist nowadays, you can't drink beer. Uh, well, you can, but you've got to be at least 10 miles from your house if you, if you drink it. So if you... But Luther would always say, well, look, it's right here in the Bible. It says Hebrews. <laughs> that was really, really, really bad. All right, let's go to chapter 12. <laughs> That's as bad as it gets right there. Okay, what I want you to look at is, is this, this really is kind of interesting. Go to verse 18, all right? And uh, again, kind of see this parallel. Um, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, remember what's going on in, in Hebrews is you, you've got these synagogues throughout Rome. Most of them have been converted. Uh, at, least, at least we believe at least half if not more, the synagogues in Rome are converted by this point. Okay? The problem is now persecution comes upon them. And rather than stand bold in Jesus Christ and say, kill us if you must, when you're reading the, the book of Hebrews, what they've done is they've stepped away from Jesus and said, well, maybe Jesus was just an angel. And so the writer of Hebrews is, is one of the strongest worded books in the Bible to say, if you back away from Jesus Christ even a little bit as your Savior, you place yourself back under the law and there's no hope for you. All right? So that's where the writer of Hebrews is coming from as he's pointing to the, the end result of living in Jesus Christ. Verse 18 says, For you, you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and a darkness and a gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages may be spoken to them. He's taking, he's taking the hearers back to a dreadful moment in history where they stand before Mount Sinai, the Mount of God, and you can't even touch the mountain lest you die. Verse 20 says, For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it must be stoned. Remember, that was the, 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 the law of God. You may not touch the mountain. It is the mountain of God. And uh, the hearers would say, the, the law that you've given us, God, is too much. We can't bear, bear up underneath it. Indeed, verse 21, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear when I look at this mountain. Now here's the contrast. The writer is trying to say, you don't live in a relationship with God like that. You live in a relationship with God that is under Jesus Christ. So he starts his contrast in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem 
and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Okay. So what he's saying is, what you, what you come under is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you come to a fast, a feast where you're with God. That's who we are. We're not under the law. Don't put yourself under the law. Put yourself under the cross of Jesus Christ. Now go down to verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming, consuming fire. Okay. So... Even in the book of Hebrews, you have this sense in which the writers of Scripture have always been saying, this day, the judgment day, is coming. It is coming. When the earth itself, the earth itself shall be shaken, and when that day comes, God is ready to judge and to separate those who believe in him from those who are outside of belief in him. Those outside of belief in him are under the full effect of the law. And they shall feel that. Okay. So, um, at that hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. Let's go back over to the Revelation. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Okay. You could almost draw a line there in your Bible because what's happened now is, John, stop. Look at what's going on. I'm in control during this whole last period of time. Even when the two witnesses look dead, they're not dead. I breathe life back into them and then at the very end I come and I am the judge. Place yourself under my grace and you will be with me forever. Now, now that John can go like this. Okay, thank you, God. I get it. You're in, you're in control. Now we can blow the seventh trumpet. The last trumpet in the third cycle. All right, let's take a look at that. Beginning verse 15. Then, the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Okay. I'm just going to stop there for a minute. For the, first, the first thing I'll just say to you is, do these words seem a little bit familiar to you? Why are they familiar? They, they become part of, of what? Of... of hymnody and Easter morning and sometimes Christmas handles Messiah, right? Um, have any of you sat through the whole of handles Messiah? You listened to the whole thing? I think you should get an award. You get, you get all the way through that thing. I'm so fidgety. I'm just fidgeting and just slapping me. Just sits this handles Messiah. I'm like, okay. I love it. And this song is one that we sing right every Easter time. 
you know, the kingdom of the Lord. And he shall reign forever and ever. Well, here it is. This is where, this is where Handel took it, took it from, okay? So think a little bit with me about what the words mean. The seventh angel is blowing his trumpet. You hear these voices, and it says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Okay, so the first question that I ask myself when I hear these words, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord's and his Christ. So I tell you to myself, well, hasn't it always been his? Because it's changing, right? It's becoming. The kingdom of this world was this. Now it has become the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Why does it say it that way? Well, uh, just, a, just a couple of thoughts for you. The first thought is, uh, to whom does this world belong? Now, interesting scripture. Ephesians chapter 2. Just take a look at it. To whom does this world right now actually belong? The interesting scripture to me is how Paul, speaking to the people in Ephesus, begins chapter 2. Here's what he says. Says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's talking to all of us, really. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. To whom does this world belong? Well, on one hand, what do we teach our kids when they're little? God created the world, the world belongs to him. Is that true? Well, yeah, it is true. That's never not true. Okay? But what does God do to the world that he's created? Two things. In Genesis 3, he puts a curse on it. Right? He says, this is my curse on man, this is my curse on the world. And he says, the world is going to struggle and it's going to face travails all the way up into the very, very end because the world through Adam and Eve's sin has been broken and it can't get put back together. I'm going to make a new one. Okay. So to whom does the world be belong? Well, we're going to find out in chapter 12 to, to whom it belongs in another sense. Remember when Satan comes against God, he is cast down to the earth. And he is mentioned right here as the prince of the power of the air. So there's a sense in which right now today, you and I who live in faith would say this world was created by God and belongs to him. But he is given to the, the prince, right? the ability to come into this world, and the prince would say, no, the world is mine. And so what the prince of the power of the air, Satan, is doing, right, is he is deceiving people and causing people to do what? To fall away from Jesus Christ or not come to faith. Those people apart from faith are living in this world. They would say, it's our world. It's ours. When the Revelation says the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord, what he's talking about is, guess what? Judgment occurs. A new earth is made. There is no more prince. There is no more 
sin, there are no people who are outside of faith. It is my world, and it is one world, and it now has begun. So he's taking us once again to the very end. One other scripture that I want you to look at. Romans. And in Romans, I'm going to take you over to chapter 8. This happens to be one of my very, very favorite scriptures. I love this. Go to uh, uh, chapter 8, and I think I'm going to begin with 18. Here's Paul speaking. He says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. By who? Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who subjected it? God did. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now listen to this, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Okay. When you hear a tornado, I say to myself, childbirth, <laughs> groaning world. When you hear an earthquake, groaning world, right? Hurricane comes, groaning, or why? It's broken. And man can't fix it. Only God can fix it. And so what he's saying is the kingdom of the world has now become. I'm going to fix it. And I'm going to fix it by bringing to an end this age that we are in and beginning a new eternity on new earth. All right. Let's flip back over to uh, the Revelation. I think we are going to stop there. Uh, and we will pick that back up next week. Let's pray. Lord God.